Good morning. Welcome to our worship gathering. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 36 today. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' warning to the Jews, that's the religious leaders, if they continue to reject Him as Lord and Savior, they would essentially die in their sins and experience eternal death, which I described as separation from God's common grace, separation from God's mercy, and separation from God's light in the place of hell. Down in verse 30, uh, it tells us that after Jesus gave this warning, many believed in Him. Now, in the next section, Jesus does two things. First, He presents a kind of litmus test for true disciples. In other words, those who began to believe in Him at that moment, He turns right around and gives them a sort of litmus test to prove whether or not they are truly believing. And uh, in, in our text here, check one, check two, check three, check four, check, check, check. Good morning. Welcome to our worship gathering. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 36 this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' warning to the Jews, the religious leaders, if they continued to reject Him as Lord and Savior, they would essentially die in their sins and experience eternal death, which I described as separation from God's common grace, separation from God's mercy, separation from God's light in the place of hell. And in verse 30, where we left off last week, it tells us that many believed in Him. Now, in the next section, Jesus basically does two things. First, He presents a litmus test for true disciples. True disciples will basically do three things, and He lists those three things here. It's as if He's testing those who just began to believe in Him. He's kind of laying out for them what their lives should look like, what they should be like. And then second, Jesus describes spiritual slavery, what that is and what that looks like, and also how to be set free from it. So we're going to go ahead and pick it up here, John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 and 32 to start off. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the first thing we noticed here is that, is that Jesus addresses a specific group. To whom did He address here? Which specific group? It is the Jews who had believed in Him. Jews in John's Gospel usually refers to the religious leaders. So this could be a group of Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to. We know that some of the Pharisees did believe in Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both Pharisees. And over in Acts 15.5, it says that believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. 
So it is entirely impossible that the specific group Jesus addressed here was a group of religious leaders or Pharisees. So it may have been Pharisees here who actually believed in Jesus at this moment. And after getting this group's attention, Jesus presents to them a litmus test. He tells them that true disciples will do three things. I hope you're ready to write them down. Number one, true disciples will persevere in the gospel. And we see that in verse 31b. Jesus put it like this, if you abide in my word. The idea here is that true disciples do not just uh, believe the gospel, the word of Christ and scripture, and then fall away from it. It's the idea here is that they don't believe for a moment and then just days later or months later or years later, they no longer believe in it. True disciples keep believing the gospel. They keep abiding in the word of Christ and they continue to do that uh, all the way off into eternity, but more particularly during their life. Uh, Luke 8.15 says uh, that true disciples basically hear the word they hold fast to it, and they bear fruit, which means they, uh, they actually obey the, the Word of God, they actually obey the gospel, and uh, they bear the fruits of righteousness and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing Jesus tells these guys is, if you are truly my disciples, you will persevere in the gospel that I preach. You will stay in my Word, and not just for a moment, but all the way unto the end of your life and beyond. So you've got to ask yourself, if, if you think that you're a true disciple, are you one who abides in Scripture, who keeps coming back to Scripture, and who keeps believing Scripture, more particularly the gospel? And, and all of us have met people who profess Christ or make some kind of profession of faith. At some point, they respond to the gospel, and then it's not long until they actually fall away from it, and they're no longer trusting in Christ. They're no longer seeking the scriptures. They're no longer doing any of that. They're not abiding in the word of Christ, and this happens all the time. In fact, Jesus warned us that it can happen when he told the parable of the sower and the seeds. You know, some seed falls on stony ground, and it, and it kind of sprouts up, and the sun, the sun scorches it, and Seed, you know, seed falls on this type of soil and it only lasts a little while and then seed falls on the good soil where it goes down and takes root and it, and it lasts and it bears much fruit. The idea there is that when the gospel is preached, people hear and receive it differently. Some immediately respond to it and believe, but then they fall away pretty quickly. And then others uh, respond to it and believe and they do it for a little bit longer of a period of time, but then they fall away from it. And then those who represent the good soil are the true disciples, those who hear the word, respond to it positively through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they continue to trust and abide in the gospel. They persevere in it. Even when calamity strikes, they stick to the word of Christ. They stick to their Savior. So Jesus comes right out of the gate and says, man, if you really belong to me, if you really believe, you will abide in my word. You will persevere and stick to the gospel and continue to believe it. Sadly, in churches today, 
Many pastors feel that they need to proclaim the gospel on occasion, and then once they've done that, they need to move on to, to new things. But quite frankly, what pastors like me and others are supposed to do is keep preaching the gospel. We're supposed to keep preaching it and coming at it from different angles as the scripture does. So we never are to leave the gospel. The gospel isn't an entry and then we move on to other things or deeper things. It doesn't work that way. The gospel is plenty deep enough uh, to keep us engaged our whole life. And so we must stick to it. And if we're true disciples, we will, and we will abide in it and keep believing it. Secondly, True disciples will grow in the gospel. Verse 32a, Jesus put it like this, you will know the truth. So the idea here is that true disciples will keep coming back to the gospel and they will grow in their understanding of the gospel. They will grow in their knowledge of the gospel. They will come to know the truth in a deeper and deeper way over time. I like how Tim Keller describes the gospel as a pool. He said it has a shallow end where a toddler can splash around, and it has a deep end where an elephant can swim. So right there, he kind of summarizes the gospel. It is both simplistic, like it has a shallow end. It's simplistic. It's a simple message. But it's also deep, like the deep end of a pool. It's also complex and has many facets and doctrines and things that are tied to it. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me is this passage in 1 Peter. Uh, it's actually 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where it describes angels. Uh, and these angels apparently never tire of looking into the gospel. The gospel is so deep and so rich that it actually fascinates and even baffles angels who are superior to us in, in many ways, in their intellect and in their, their abilities. And so if the angels never tire of looking into it, boy, we as true disciples should never tire of looking into it and we should keep coming back to it and growing in our knowledge and understanding of it Pretty amazing. True disciples, uh, we could say that true disciples love to mine the depths of the gospel and discover its riches. And when we think of the gospel, I want you to think of the doctrine of election and predestination and, and you know, the atonement and justification and sanctification, glorification, adoption. I mean, think of all of the various components and doctrines that are in the gospel. This is why you could never exhaust the gospel. It is so intricate and broad and fascinating. And this is why the angels never tire of looking into it. It blows their minds and it should blow our minds. And true disciples just love to grow in their knowledge and understanding of what Christ has done for them. That should, that's the actual real heart and disposition, the attitude of a true disciple. They love the gospel. They never get tired of hearing it. I suppose you could get tired of hearing the gospel if your preacher keeps saying it exactly the same and doesn't come at it from different angles. That's understandable. But the scripture comes at the person and work of Christ from so many different angles. There's just really no way to get tired of the gospel and how scripture itself presents it. So if a man uh, is preaching the gospel and coming at it as Scripture does, it just never, ever gets old. I never get tired of hearing about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I just never do. It's like built into my, my Christian DNA. I love 
to hear the gospel. I love to hear about what Christ has done for me. It just exhilarates me and empowers me and builds love uh, for Christ. Number three, true disciples will experience freedom through the gospel. And we see that in verse 32b. Jesus put it like this, the truth will set you free. Now, Jesus was not referring to the initial freedom a true disciple experiences when they first believe. This is not freedom from the penalty and wages of sin. That part is already completed. It is freedom from temptation and sin on a daily basis. As we engage the gospel and grow in our understanding of it, our minds are transformed, our minds are renewed, and our minds are freed from the patterns of this world. And we see that in Romans 12 too. In other words, we begin to think and act differently. We begin to think differently from those around us. We begin to act differently from those around us. Why? Because we have... We are being liberated each day and each moment by the truth of the gospel, by the knowledge of the gospel. Purity becomes our pursuit rather than mere fleshly pleasure. Now, before I was saved, that's, that's all that I pursued was fleshly pleasure. And I would have to be transparent and honest with you here. I still pursue it to a great deal, certainly not the same way that I did prior to being saved and changed. But uh, for the most part, purity becomes something that I pursue now. And, and, and that is happening uh, as I am being freed and liberated by the old mindset and the old man through the renewal of my mind and uh, through the scripture and through the gospel. I am being set free by it as I grow in the knowledge of it. And, you know, as we're growing in our knowledge of it, of the gospel, our love for Christ, it, it begins to grow, it begins to increase, and so does our hatred of sin. You cannot be increasing in your love of Christ or for Christ and increasing in your love of sin. One goes up and the other goes down. They're counterweighted. So if you're increasing in your love for Christ as you discover and grow in your knowledge of what He's done for you, man, you're going to be you know, disliking and hating sin even more. That is the, the actual sanctifying process of the gospel in our lives and how we are being made free. Uh, think of it like this. Christ becomes more and more appealing to us while sin becomes less and less appealing to us. In our ability to turn away from temptation and sin and walk in freedom increases. Uh, the inner presence and power of the Holy Spirit makes these things not only possible, but a reality for true disciples. Now, of course, it is true that we will not reach perfection in this life, but there will be progression. Uh, that's the big difference right there. We don't reach perfection in this life. We'll never be able to completely overcome or stay away from sin. We will grow in our ability to avoid temptation and sin, but we won't become perfected in this life. But as a true disciple and we're growing in the knowledge of the gospel, there should be progression. In other words, if you've been saved for 10 years, look back 10 years and you were committing certain sins when you got saved you should not still be engaging in some of those same sins. Like take, for instance, when I was first saved, I was very much engaged in, 
in pornography. And, you know, I, it's been 15 years. I gave that sin up a long time ago. I'm not still doing it. I, I prefer to walk in the freedom that I have than to give in to that temptation and disgrace Christ and damage my life and marriage. But there should be a progression. You should be getting, as a true disciple, you should be getting better at avoiding temptation and battling sin as you're growing in your knowledge of the gospel. There is greater freedom that comes to you that you can walk in as you grow in that knowledge. In terms of perfection, again, like I said, it's not something that we will reach in life uh, but there should be progression. But the good news is perfection will come later when we enter the physical presence of Christ. So that's great news. Uh, there'll come a time where we do not have to wrestle with temptation and, and try to avoid sin. Uh, it'll, it'll just be done for us and complete, which will be great. Now let's take a look at verse 33. Now this is the, the Jews, the Pharisees responding to him. It says, they answered him, they answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, the Jews who believed were actually offended because they thought Jesus called them slaves. They actually got angry here. And this is really interesting to me. Uh, when I first became a believer, I was not offended by Jesus, nor did I get angry with him. I did get angry with somebody, but it wasn't Jesus. I got angry with myself for, for being such a terrible sinner and rebel against God. I had never realized that about myself. And then when I got saved, I, it was almost like a mirror was held up in front of me, and I realized, dude, you are a total and absolute sinner through and through, and you have rebelled against God, and you have so offended Him, but by God's mercy and grace, you're now saved. But I tell you, I got angry, not with Jesus because of what He said. I, I didn't get angry with Jesus. I actually fell in love with Him right at that moment. Now, my love for him has been increasing throughout the years as I grow in the knowledge of the gospel, but for the most part, I went from despising Jesus to totally loving him. And, and I'm just so curious and kind of baffled by the response of these alleged disciples here. How is it that, that minutes after they believed, they became offended and angry? Is this normal behavior for a new believer? No, it's not. Not at all. Uh, what is normal for a new believer is a, is a broken spirit, you know, that, that's normal. Uh, contrition is normal. Repentance is normal. Tears of sorrow are normal. Tears of joy are normal. Gratitude is normal. Uh, worship is normal. You know, if you flip over to the next chapter, you look at a guy who was born blind and Jesus heals him of his sight. And a little later in the narrative, Jesus actually saves the man. Uh, you know, he gives him salvation. The man believes. The first thing he does is worship Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus weird questions or get offended. He falls on his knees and starts worshiping him. But the Jews here, the Jews who believed, they were not characterized by, by any of these things. And this raises a major red flag. In a rather defensive way, they replied, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will set us free? Now, it is doubtful that they were referring to external slavery here. Um, Israel was currently under the power and domination of Rome. In other words, Israel was currently enslaved by Rome right at this very moment. 
And before, uh, before the Romans had power and, uh, over Israel and before Israel was under their control and slavery, uh, they were enslaved by other world empires like the Greeks, the Medo-Persians, the Babylonians, and a little later on, or a little earlier, even the Egyptians, what, for 400 years in Egypt? You know, the, the Jews who believed here, they, they, they were totally aware of their current enslavement to Rome, and they were totally educated in their history, in Israel's history. And so they could not have been referring to external slavery here. What they did not understand is the very thing that Jesus is referring to here. They did not understand internal slavery, or another way to put it would be spiritual slavery. This is what Jesus is pointing to here. And this is not something they understood or believed, actually. I think they understood what, he, what Jesus meant. I don't, I don't think they believed what he was saying. As physical descendants of Abraham, these men believed they were, you know, the chosen people, meaning chosen for salvation. As Jews, they were the recipients of the Mosaic Law, and that set them apart from all other nations. Uh, uh, they, also had the, uh, they also had the sacrificial system. Uh, which they believed cleansed them spiritually. You know, as long as they were killing those animals and that would cover their sins and cleanse them, uh, as long as they had the Mosaic law, you know, and they were obeying it, there's where their righteousness came from. Basically, in their minds, they, they had everything they needed for spiritual freedom. And they did not see themselves as sinners or as slaves to sin. It was as if they had said to Jesus, we don't need you to test us, Jesus. We are true disciples. We are spiritually free. Why? Because we are of the seed of Abraham. Now, minutes after their alleged conversion, the Jews believed, the Jews who believed refused. They were already refusing to abide in Jesus' word. They were already refusing to believe his teachings here. And they basically failed his test right off the bat. How could a freshly saved, brand spanking new group of believers turn to their Lord and Savior and say, I don't think that's how it works, Jesus. We believe you're wrong. That's essentially what they're doing here. They now believe, but then they're immediately turning around and offended by what Jesus said? And how can he say that we're slaves? Does he not understand that, you know, who we are, that we come from Abraham and we have the law and that's where our righteousness comes from and we have the sacrificial system and that's where our atonement comes from? How could Jesus say this? It's just astonishing to me that new believers would even question Jesus in this way. And that's why I said last week when I started to reference this section, I said I don't think they were real believers at all. I don't think these guys were truly converted. I, I think they believed in a sense, but not the way that they should have. And uh, J.C. Ryle, this is why J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, there is no reason to think that the belief here was anything more than a head belief that our Lord was the Messiah. And then he says, many believed in this way, but their hearts remained unchanged. So J.C. Ryle says, they believed here, certainly, but it was more of a head knowledge. It wasn't head and heart knowledge. It wasn't transformative knowledge. They did not yield to Jesus. They did not submit to him. They just were able to put some of the uh, puzzle pieces together 
and thought of him as Messiah, but they weren't really believing or trusting in him for their salvation. And that's why they turned right around and questioned him. And if you read a little further along in the narrative, they get so offended by him, they say some incredibly inflammatory things to Jesus. And Jesus, quite frankly, says some inflammatory things to them. So we have no reason to believe these are true disciples at all here. They, pat, they failed the litmus test. They're questioning Jesus. They're very toxic. Uh, and the truth is, descendancy from Abraham did nothing for these men spiritually. And that's what they implied. They implied that we're not spiritual slaves by any means because we come from Abraham. Well, the fact that they were descendants of Abraham did nothing for them spiritually. Uh, and, you know, I used to teach junior high kids this all the time. You know, they, they were descendants of believing parents. You know, well, my parents believe and they go to church, so I'm okay. And I would always challenge them and say, you know what, you are not okay. You can't live off of mommy and daddy's faith. You need to come to the realization that you are also a sinner and that you need to be saved by grace through faith as well, just as your parents did. In other words, your parents' faith and belief, it will sanctify you, it will lead you in the right direction, but it will never, ever, ever save you. You need to come to terms with who you are between you and God, and you need to confess your sin, and you need to repent, and you need to believe in Jesus yourself. I used to teach this all the time to them because it's very frightening. When you're in junior high, you do what your parents tell you to do. You believe what your parents tell you to believe, and that's all good and fine and dandy, but that's not going to get you saved. You need to make your own connection with the Lord in repentance and faith. And so these guys, man, they thought they were good to go because they were tied to Abraham. And you know what? Their obedience to the Mosaic law and their animal sacrifices they made, that did nothing for them spiritually either. None of that helped them spiritually. Coming from Abraham, having the law, uh, and making the sacrifices did nothing for these men spiritually. It paid no spiritual dividends at all. Uh, these things did not take away their sins and grant them spiritual freedom. It just didn't happen. And verse 34, Jesus corrects their thinking by defining what spiritual slavery is. Take a look at it with me. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So as noted in previous sermons that I've preached, the phrase truly, truly introduces a statement of great importance. You remember I've said this to you because Jesus has said truly, truly before in John's gospel. And anytime you see the word truly, truly back to back like that, it means the next thing that Jesus is going to say, super, super, super important. And here, after saying that, Jesus clearly and emphatically states that those who practice sin are actually slaves to sin. Now, the practice of sin here does not merely refer to individual acts of sin. It refers to sin as a life principle or mode of operation, or if you're one of those computer guys, a default mode. In other words, your life and your default mode is just sin on top of sin. It's what you do. It's what you love. You just live in sin. You just keep sinning. It's what you prefer. It's what you're all about. In fact, your life can be defined by your sins. Here it also means to practice sin habitually, or it means to live in perpetual sin. 
Now, to be a slave is to be totally under the control of another and unable to free oneself. So sin, like a cruel taskmaster, controls every aspect of an unbeliever's life, enslaving that person to what? Various lusts and pleasures, Titus 3.3. Now, here's what you must understand. Everyone is a slave in the spiritual sense. All of us. We all are. We are all slaves to sin. That's a reality because we're all born in sin, right? And it says in Scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there are no people who are without sin except for Jesus himself. So in the spiritual sense, we are all slaves in that spiritual sense. And Jesus is what changes our status. You see, we are either slaves to sin, which is our natural state, or by faith through grace, we are slaves to Christ. Okay, if we are still in Adam, we are slaves to sin. If we are in Christ now, by grace through faith, we are slaves to Christ. So there really are two types of people in the world. There are those who are in Adam, those who are still in their sin, they are slaves to sin, or those who are in Christ, who are slaves to Christ. There's really only two types of people, right? Unsaved and saved. Now, despite their proud, self-righteous pretense of freedom, Jesus tells the Jews here that they were indeed slaves to sin. This must have blown their minds. I mean, they, these were the most religious people on the face of the earth at the time. They, 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 had, they came from Abraham. They had the law. They had the sacrificial system. And they, they did not think of themselves as being enslaved to anything or anyone, especially sin. And Jesus flat out tells them here, you are indeed slaves to sin. He even give, gives them an example down in verse 39. You know, they were claiming to be spiritually free because of Abraham. But Abraham was a man of faith who believed in the coming Messiah, Jesus, and who also obeyed the word of God. In verse 39, Jesus tells them, if you were spiritually free, you would be doing what Abraham did. You would be acting like his children instead of what? Trying to kill me. (laughs) Their rejection of Jesus, their hatred of Jesus their attempts to capture Jesus, their attempts to kill Jesus, basically proved that they were slaves to sin and the children of someone else, the devil, not Abraham, the devil. Look at verse 44. Now in verse 35, Jesus gives a historical example of slavery and freedom. Look at it with me. Verse 35 says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, it seems that Jesus had the story of Hagar and her son Ishmael in mind here. Hagar was an Egyptian slave girl and maidservant to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Hagar and Ishmael were basically slaves. They were slaves to Abraham's family, and they were never fully accepted into Abraham's family because that's pretty much just not what you did with slaves. And this is interesting because Abraham actually fathered Ishmael. I mean, if you know the story, you know that Abraham was married to Sarah and they were older in age and they'd been given a promise of of a child, but Abraham couldn't wait for that child to come. So 
He concocted a scheme with his wife, Sarah, for him to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, and have a child, have a son through him, and that child would become the heir of Abraham's uh, inheritance and, and fortunes and all of that. So he just kind of bypassed the promise of God and took it upon himself to do this. But even though Ishmael was his son, Ishmael was still regarded as a slave child, and so was his mama, Hannah. It was really a, a terrible situation. At one point, Hagar and Ishmael, those two, were cast out of the family. They were sent packing. They were kicked out, driven off into the wilderness. Genesis 21, 14. Now, Abraham eventually did have a son through Sarah named Isaac, and he was the child of covenant promise. He was the child that, that God, you know, promised to him, I'm going to give you a son and he's going to be an heir and, and the covenant promises, the Abrahamic promises are going to come through him. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, that succession of leadership there. Isaac eventually was born. God followed through with his promise, even though Abraham couldn't wait for it. But Isaac was born and he was the child of covenant promise. And Isaac, in the text that Jesus says here, Isaac was in a sense the son who remains. Uh, he was the son in the family who was accepted and the son who remains in the household. Ishmael, on the other hand, was the slave son. And slave sons don't have any power. Slave sons don't have any pull. Slave sons don't have any right. Uh, or uh, slaves don't have any rights to the inheritance, to any of that. And actually, Ishmael was what? He was cast out. Now, Jesus tells the Jews this story because they are like Ishmael, right? They're slaves to sin, and they're like Ishmael. You are the slave son. You don't have the inheritance here. Uh, this household and inheritance, you have no right to it. You are essentially a castaway. This is why he tells them the story. He's telling them because of their sin, because of their unbelief in Jesus, they are like Ishmael. Ishmael. They are outside of God's covenant family because of their unbelief. And yet, Jesus also implies here, if they will believe in Him as their Savior, they will be adopted as sons and made permanent members of God's household, as Isaac was a permanent member of Abraham's household. So, if we are still slaves to sin, we're like Ishmael. We're outside of God's covenant family. But if we have surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ, we are like Isaac. We belong to the house forever. That is exactly what Jesus is, is teaching them here. Now, for Jesus to tie them to Ishmael must have been super, super offensive. I mean, they had just said, hey, we're like Isaac. We came from Abraham. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You reject me. You do the opposite of what Abraham did. You have more in common with Ishmael as a slave child than you do with Isaac, the rightful heir. Now, in verse 36, Jesus cuts right to the chase and points directly to the only source for spiritual freedom. Look at it with me, verse 36. He says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, the only source for spiritual freedom is the Son. Only the Son can set us free. Which Son? Was Jesus referring to Abraham's son, Isaac? No, not Isaac. Jesus was referring to the better Son. The, the, the best son, right? Notice how it's capitalized. 
He was referring to the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about some Old Testament prophecy here. What does Isaiah 61.1 say Messiah would come to do? He would come to what? Proclaim liberty to the captives and open the prison to those who are bound. (laughs) So Isaiah says that when Messiah comes, he's going to come proclaim liberty to the captives and he's going to come and open the prison to them. He's going to release them from, from prison. Well, what does it mean to proclaim liberty? Well, the gospel is the message of liberty. Now, who are the captives? Everyone who is a sinner and everyone who is a slave to sin. So the Messiah was essentially to come to to what? To proclaim the gospel, the message of liberation to the captives, to you and I, to those who are enslaved to sin. And not only that, but to blow the doors off of the prison cells and to release us, to set us free. That's what Isaiah says Messiah was going to come to do. 700 years later, what did Jesus say he had come to do when he entered a synagogue in Nazareth at basically the beginning of his ministry? He quoted Isaiah. He said, I have come to what? Proclaim liberty to the captives. I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed those who are imprisoned enshackled to sin satan death and hell luke 4:18 to 19 so jesus the son of god came to proclaim liberty the message of the gospel to the captives who's that those who are enslaved to and by sin you and i and what to liberate us through his life death burial and resurrection 700 years before Jesus comes, Isaiah says the Messiah is going to come to proclaim that message of freedom and liberation. And not only is he going to proclaim it, but he's actually going to secure it and accomplish it through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then Jesus, 700 years later, says, this is why I've, what I've come to do. He says to those who were listening to him in that synagogue, today this, this prophecy is fulfilled in me. Of course, the people didn't receive him well. But we know that this is precisely why he came and precisely what he secured for sinners like you and I, those who were enslaved to sin. Now, how do we receive and experience this deliverance, this liberation, this freedom from slave, uh, slavery to sin? How, how do we experience it? Well, we must do as Jesus was commanding the Pharisees at this point to do. We must believe in him. We must believe in his person and work. In other words, we must believe in the one who came to liberate us, the Son, Jesus Christ. We must put our faith in Him and Him alone. We must also submit to Him as Lord. Now, if we do this, the Son will set us free, and we will be what? Jesus said, free indeed. To me, that that means absolutely free, totally freed. And I love what Guy Waters wrote here. And he just has a great little section on this text. He says, Christ delivers his people not only from the guilt and penalty of sin, but also from the dominion, presence, and power of sin. The gospel involves, therefore, a complete rescue operation from sin. He says, we are not partially delivered and then instructed to finish the job. No, 
Christ is a full and sufficient Savior from sin. I love how he put that. The deliverance Christ secured for us involves many components. You know, I've kind of been hinting at this, right? I talked about how the gospel has all of these various components and doctrines and election and all of that stuff. And, and this deliverance, which is represented in the gospel that Christ secured for us, it has many facets or components. The two that I've been really focusing on studying lately are justification and sanctification. In justification, Christ deals with the legal dimensions of our sin. He imputes His righteousness, His perfect righteousness to us. And God literally changes our legal status from sinner to saint. And then through sanctification, Jesus deals with the enslaving and corrupting dimensions of our sin. Over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, Christ recreates us in His own image and conforms us to His likeness. He literally makes us like Himself, not in His divinity, but in His character and glory. Now, it is true that we will never be as glorious as the Son, but as sons and daughters, we will share in the Son's glory, Romans 8, 17. And to that I say, hallelujah. Closing. Do you believe in the Son? Have you been set free by the Son? Or are you a slave to sin? Are you a true disciple? Are you persevering in the gospel, you know, staying in it? Are you growing in the gospel, your knowledge of it? Are you experiencing ever-increasing degrees of freedom through the gospel? In other words, are you gaining strength and power over temptation and sin? Or are you like those Jews, those Pharisees, who had head knowledge but no heart knowledge, no transformation? If you believe in the Son, the Son has set you free. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have become a slave to righteousness, Romans 6.18. That means you have become a slave to doing what is right and pleasing to God and what absolutely fills you with the most joy. Live as a freed son or daughter in the household of God. Do what is right. Pursue purity. Pursue righteousness. That is what you are called to do. That is what you are being transformed to do. That is what you are empowered to do. If you do not believe in Jesus, you are a slave to sin. It's not just that you're a sinner, but sin owns you. Sin controls you. Sin leads you. Sin guides you. Believe in Christ and, and come out from your taskmaster. Let Christ deal with your sins and thus remove your penalty, your Shame your guilt.
Become a true disciple, one who perseveres, grows, and experiences ever-increasing freedom in the gospel. You do not have to die in your sins, which is precisely what you will do if you do not yield and believe in Christ. Humble yourself and come to Christ, and He will remove your sins. He will make you righteous. He will empower you to live for Him. Amen.